Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fortations Life to Tape podcast. This is part eight of the Junior Classics, volume one, Fairy and Wonder Tales. And this is a podcasting 2.0 podcast, which means that you can find it in any modern day podcast app that supports podcasting 2.0. And the easiest way uh, to find this podcast is just through search. Uh, I personally recommend Podverse. I've been using that uh, for the past couple of months. I really enjoy it. Um, and with that, let's get started. The Glass Mountain by Herman R. Kettle Once upon a time there was a glass mountain, at the top of which stood a castle made of pure gold, and in front of the castle there grew an apple tree on which there were golden apples. Anyone who picked an apple gained admittance into the golden castle, and there in a silver room sat the enchanted princess of surprising fairness and beauty. She was as rich, too, as she was beautiful, for the cellars of the castle were full of precious stones, and great chests of finest gold stood around the walls of all the rooms. Many knights had come from far to try their luck, but it was in vain they attempted to climb the mountain, in spite of having their horses shod with sharp nails, no one managed to get more than halfway up, and then they fell back right down to the bottom of the steep, slippery hill. Sometimes they broke an arm, sometimes a leg, and many brave men had broken his neck, even. The beautiful princess sat at her window and watched the bold knights trying to reach her on their splendid horses. The sight of her always gave men fresh courage, and they flocked from four quarters of the globe to attempt the work of rescuing her, but all was in vain, and for seven years the princess had sat now and waited for someone to scale the glass mountain. A heap of corpses, both of riders and horses, lay round the mountain, and many dying men lay groaning there, unable to go any further with their wounded limbs. The whole neighborhood had the appearance of a vast churchyard. In three more days, the seven years would be at an end, when a knight in golden armor and mounted on a spirited steed was seen making his way toward the fatal hill. Sticking his spurs into the horse, he made such a rush at the mountain. He made such a rush at a mountain and got halfway up. Then he calmly turned his horse's head and came down again without a sip or stubble. The following day he started in the same way, the horse trod on the glass as if it had been level earth, and sparks of fire flew from its hoofs. All the other knights gazed in astonishment, for he had almost gained the summit, and in another moment he would have reached the apple tree, but of a sudden a huge eagle rose up and spread its wings mightily, spread its mighty wings, hitting as it did so the knight's horse in the eye. The beast sheared and opened its wide nostrils and tossed its mane, then bearing high up in the air, its hind feet, its hind feet slipped, and fell with its rider down the steep mountainside. Nothing was left of either of them except their bones, which rattled in the 
which rattled in the bad earned golden armor like dry peas in a pod. Now there was only one more day before the close of the seven years. Then they arrived on the scene. Then there arrived on the scene a mere schoolboy, merry, happy hearted youth, but at the same time strong and well grown. He saw how many knights had but broken their necks in vain, but undaunted he approached the steep mountain on foot and began the ascent. For long he had heard his parents speak of the beautiful princess who sat in the golden castle at the top of the glass mountain. He listened to all he heard and determined that he too would try his luck, but first he went to the forest and caught a lynx and cutting off the creature's sharp claws, he fastened it to his own hands and feet. Armed with these weapons, he boldly stared, started up the mount, glass mountain. The sun was nearly going down, and the youth had not gone more than halfway up. He could hardly draw breath, he was so worn out. His mouth was parched by thirst. A huge black cloud passed over his head, but in vain did he beg and beseech her to let a drop of water fall on him. He opened his mouth, but the black cloud sailed past, and not so much as a drop of dew moistened his dry lips. His feet were torn and bleeding, and he could only hold on now with his hands. Evening closed in, and he strained his eyes to see if he could behold the top of the mountain. Then he gazed beneath him, and what a sight met his eyes. A yawning abyss with certain and terrible death at the bottom, reeking and half-decayed bodies of horses and riders, and this had been the end of all the other brave men who, like himself, had attempted the ascent. It was almost pitch dark now, and only the stars lit up the glass mountain. The poor boy still clung on, as if glued to the glass by his bloody-stained hands. He made no struggle to get higher, for all his strength had left him, and seeing no hope, he calmly awaited death. Then all of a sudden he fell into a deep sleep, and forgetful of his dangerous position, he slumbered sweetly. But all the same, although he slept, he had stuck his sharp claws so firmly into the glass that he was quite safe not to fall. Now the golden apple tree was guarded by the eagle, which had overthrown the golden knight and his horse. Every night it flew round the glass mountain, keeping a careful lookout, and no sooner had the moon emerged from the clouds than the bird rose from the apple tree and circled around in the air, caught sight of the sleeping youth. Greedy for kerosene, and sure that this must be a fresh corpse, the bird swooped down upon the boy, but he was awake now, and perceiving the eagle, he determined by its help to save him. The eagle dug its sharp claws into the tender flesh of the youth, but he bore at the pain without a sound, and seized the bird's two feet with his hands. The creature in terror lifted him high up into the air, and began to circle round the tower of the castle. The youth held on bravely. He saw the glistening palace, which by the pale rays of the moon looked like a dim lamp, and he saw the high windows, and round one of them a balcony in which the beautiful princess sat lost in sad thoughts. Then the boy saw that he was close to his to the apple tree, and drawing a small knife from his belt, cut off both the eagle's feet. The bird rose up in the air in its ag agony and vanished into the clouds, and the youth fell onto the broad branches of the apple tree. Then he drew out the claws of the eagle feet that had remained in his flesh to peel 
off one of the apples on the ground. And in a moment, he, he was headed, healed, and well again. He pulled several of the beautiful apples and put them in his pocket. Then he entered the castle. The door was guarded by a great dragon, but as soon as he threw an apple at it, the beast vanished. At the same moment, a gate opened, and the youth perceived a courtyard full of flowers and beautiful trees, and on the balcony sat a lovely enchanted princess with her retain with her retire. As soon as she saw the youth, she ran to him and greeted him as her husband and master. She gave him all her treasures, and the youth became a rich and mighty ruler. But he never returned to the earth, for only the mighty eagle who had been the guardian of the princess and of the castle could have carried on his wings the enormous treasure down to the world. But as the eagle had lost its feet, it died, and nobody was found in a wood on the was found in a wood on the glass mountain one day when the youth was trolling about the palace garden with the princess his wife he looked down over the edge of the glass mountain and saw to his astonishment a great number of people gathered there he blew his silver whistle and the swallow who acted as a messenger in the golden castle flew past fly down and ask what the matter is he said to the little bird who sped off like lightning and soon returned, saying, The blood of the eagle has restored all the peoples below. The blood of the eagle has restored all the people below to life, and all those who perished on this mountain are waking up today, as it were, from a sleep, and are mounting their horses, and the whole population are gazing on this unheard of wonder with joy and amazement. The Huntsman, the Unlucky by John T. Nake. One, once upon a time there lived a huntsman. He would go every day in search of game, but it often happened that he was that he killed nothing, and so was obliged to return home with the bag empty. On that account he was nicknamed Huntsman the Unlucky. At last he was reduced by his ill fortune to such extremities that he had not a piece of bread nor a coplic left. The wretched man wandered about the forest cold and hungry. He, he had eaten nothing for three days and was nearly dying of starvation. He lay down on the grass determined to put an end to his existence. Happily better thoughts came into his mind. He crossed himself and threw away the gun. Suddenly he heard a rustling noise near him. It seemed to issue from some thick grass close at hand. The hunter got up and approached the spot. Then he observed that the grass partly hid a gloomy abyss, from the bottom of which there rose a stone, and on it lay a small jar. As he looked and listened, the hunter heard a small voice crying, Dear kind traveler, release me. The voice seemed to project from a little jar. The courageous hunter, the curious hunter, walking carefully from one stone to another, approached the spot where the jar lay, took it up gently, and heard a voice crying from within like the chirping of a grasshopper. Release me, and I will be of service to you. Who are you, my little friend? asked the huntsman, the unlucky. I have no name, and I cannot be seen by human eyes, answered the soft voice. If you want me, call me Mirza. A wicked magician put me in this jar, sealed it with the seal of King Solomon, and then threw me into this fearful place, where I have lain for seventy years. 
Very good, the huntsman, the unlucky. I will give you your liberty, and then we shall see how you will keep your word. He broke the seal and opened the little jar, but there was nothing in it. Hello, where are you, my friend? cried the hunter. By your side, a voice answered. The hunter looked about him, but could see no one. Mirza, ready, I await your orders. I am your servant for the next three days, and will do whatever you desire. You only have to say, go there. I know not where. Bring something. I know not what. Very well, said the hunter. You will know, You will doubtless know best what is wanted. Go there. I know not where. Bring something. I know not what. As soon as the hunter had uttered these words, there appeared before him a table covered with dishes, each filled with the most delicious vinlands, and as if they had come direct from a banquet of the Tsar. The hunter sat down at the table and ate and drank till he was satisfied. He then rose and crossed himself, and bowing on all sides, exclaimed, Thank you, thank you. Instantly the table and everything else with it disappeared, and the hunter continued his journey. After walking some distance, he sat down by the roadside to rest. So it happened that, while the hunter was resting himself, there passed through the forest a gypsy thief, leading a horse which he wanted to sell. I wish I had the money to buy the horse with, thought the hunter. What a pity my pockets are empty. However, I will ask my invisible friend Mirza. Ready? Go there, not where. Go there, I know not where. Bring something, I know not what. In less than a minute, the hunter heard the money clinking in his pocket. Gold poured into them. He knew not how or where. Thanks, you have kept your words, said the hunter. He then began to bargain with the gypsy for the horse. Having agreed upon the price, he paid the man in gold, who, staring at the hunter with his mouth wide open, wondered where Huntsman the Unlucky had gotten so much money from. Parting from the hunter, the gypsy thief ran with all his speed to the farther end of the forest and whistled. There was no answer. They are asleep, thought the gypsy, and entered a cavern where some robbers, lying on this on the skins of animals or resting themselves. Aloha, comrades, are you asleep? cried the gypsy. Get up quick, or you'll lose a fine bird. He is alone in the forest, and his pockets are full of gold. Make haste. The robbers sprang up and mounted their horses and galloped after the hunter. The hunter heard the clatter, and seeing himself suddenly surrounded by robbers, cried out, Mirza, ready, answered the voice near him. Go there, I know not where. Bring something I do not know what. There was a rustling noise heard in the forest, and then something from behind the trees fell upon the robbers. They were knocked from their horses and scattered all scattered all, all sides, yet no hand was seen to touch them. The robbers thrown upon the ground could not raise themselves, and the hunter, thankful and rejoicing at his deliverance, rode on and soon found his way out of the dark forest and came upon a town. Near this town there were pitched tents full of soldiers. Huntsman the Unlucky was told that an enormous army of Tartars had come under the command of the Khan, who, angry at being, refused the hand of the beautiful princess Milavazora, the daughter of the Tsar, had declared war against him. The hunter had seen the princess Milavazora when she was out hunting in the forest, she used to ride a beautiful horse and carry a golden lance in her hand. A magnificent quiver of arrows hung from her shoulder. When her veil was lifted up, she appeared like 
the spring sunlight to give light to the eyes and warmth to the heart. The hunter reflected for a little while and then cried Mirza. In an instant he found himself dressed in splendid attire. His jacket was embroidered with gold. He wore a beautiful mantle on his shoulders and ostrich feathers hung gracefully down from the top of his helmet, fastened by a brooch of ruby surrounded by pearls. The hunter went into the castle, presented himself before the Tsar, and offered to drive away the forces of the enemy, on the condition that the Tsar give him the beautiful princess Milazora for his wife. The Tsar was greatly surprised, but did not like to refuse such an offer at once. He first asked the hunter his name, his birth, and his possessions. I'm the huntsman the unlucky, master of the Mirza the invisible. The Tsar thought the young, the young stranger was mad. The courtier, however, who had seen him before, assured the Tsar that the stranger exactly resembled the huntsman the unlucky, whom they knew, but how he had got that splendid dress they could not tell. Then the Tsar demanded, Do you hear what they say? If you're telling lies, you will lose your head. Let us see them. How will you overcome the enemy with forces of your invisible Mirza? Be good, Hope, Tsar, answered the hunter. As soon as I say the word, everything will be complete. Good, said the Tsar. If you have spoken the truth, you shall have my daughter for your wife. If you have not, your head will be forfeit. The hunter said to himself, I shall either become a prince or I am a lost man. Then he whispered, Mirza, go there. I know not where, do this. I know not what. A few minutes passed, and there was nothing to be heard of or seen. The huntsman, the unlucky, turned pale. The Tsar, enraged, ordered him to be seized and put in irons, when suddenly the firing of guns was heard in the distance. The Tsar and his courtiers ran out on the steps leading to the castle and saw bodies of men approaching both right and left, their standard waving grace in the air. The soldiers were splendidly equipped. The Tsar could hardly believe his eyes, for he himself had no troops so fine as these. These as no delusion, cried the huntsman, the unlucky. These are the forces of my invisible friend. Let them drive away the enemy, then, if they can, said the Tsar. The hunter waved his handkerchief. The army wheeled into, wielded into position. Music burst forth in a martial strain, and the great cloud of dust arose. When the dust had cleared away, the army was gone. The Tsar invited the huntsman the unlucky to dinner and asked him numerous questions about Mirza the Invisible. At the second course, the news came that the enemy was flying in every direction, completely routed. The terrified Tartars had left all their tents and baggage behind them. The Tsar thanked the hunter for his assistance and informed his daughter that he had found a husband for her. Princess Melzora blushed upon receiving this intelligence, then turned pale and began to shed tears. The hunter whispered something to Mirza, and the princess's tears changed into precious stones as they fell. The courtiers hastened to pick them up. They were pearls and diamonds. The princess smiled at this, and overcome with pleasure, gave her hand to the huntsman, the unlucky, unlucky no longer, then began to feast. But there, here the story must end. The Story of the Little Simpleton by John T. Nake Once there lived a peasant and his wife who had three daughters. The two elder girls were cunning and selfish. The youngest was simple and open-hearted, and on that account came to be called 
first by her sisters and afterward by her father and mother, Little Simpleton. Little Simpleton was pushed about and had to fetch everything that was wanted and was always kept at work, but she was ever ready to do what she was told and never uttered a word of complaint. She would water the garden, prepare pine splinters, milk the cows, feed the ducks. She had to wait upon everybody in a word. She was the drudge of the family. One day, as the peasant was going with the hay to the market, he asked his daughter what they would like what they would like him to buy for them. Buy me some kermesh, red wool stuff from Burkest, for saffron, a long dress worn by the Russian peasant women. Father, answered the eldest daughter, and me some nekin, said the second. The youngest daughter alone did not ask for a present. The present was moved with the compass. The pre- peasant was moved with this compassion for the girl, although the simpleton she was still his daughter. Turning his head, he asked, Well, little simpleton, what shall I buy for you? The simpleton smiled and replied, Buy me, dearest father, a little silver plate and a little apple. What do you want them for? asked her sister. I will make a little apple roll around the plate and will say some words to it, which an old woman taught me because I gave her a cake. The peasant promised to buy his daughter what they asked of him, and they started for the market. He sold his hay and brought the present, some nankin for one of his daughters, and another some kermash, and for the little simpleton sister, for the little little silver plate and a little apple. Then he returned home and gave these things to his daughter. The girls were delighted. The two elder ones made themselves saffrons and laughed at little simpleton, wondering what she would do with the silver plate and the apple. Little simpleton did not eat the apple, but sat down in the corner and cried, Roll, roll, little apple, on the silver plate, and show me towns and fields, forests and seas, lofty mountains and beautiful skies. And the apple began to roll on the plate, and thereupon there appeared on it a town after town, ships sailing on the sea, and people in the fields, mountains and beautiful skies, suns and stars, all the things looked so beautiful and were so wonderful that it would be impossible to tell of them in a story or describe them with the pen. At first the elder sisters looked at the little plate with delight. Soon, however, their hearts were filled with envy, and they began to try to get it from the younger sister, but the girl would not part with it on any account. Then the wicked girl said, Dearest sister, let us go into the forest to gather blackberries. The little simpleton got up and gave the plate and an apple to her father and went with them into the forest. They walked about and gathered blackberries. All at once they saw the spade lying upon the ground. The wicked sisters killed little simpleton with it and buried her under a birch tree. They returned home late and told their father the simpleton is lost. She ran away from us in the forest. We searched but could not find her anywhere. The wolves must have eaten her. The peasants regretted the loss of his daughter bitterly, for although so simple she was, she how simple she was, still his child. The wicked sisters also shed tears. Her father put the little silver plate and the little apple into a box and locked them up. The next morning, a shepherd 
was tending his sheep near the place, playing on his pipe and searching the forest for one of his flock that was missing. He observed the little grave under the birch tree. It was covered by the most lovely flowers, and out of the middle of the grave there grew a reed. The shepherd cut off the reed and made a pipe of it. As soon as the pipe was prepared, oh wonderful, it began to play itself and say, Play, oh pipe, play. A comfort my old parents and sisters. I was killed for the sake of my little silver plate and my little apple. When the people heard of this, they ran out of their huts and all came round the shepherd and began to ask who was killed. Good people, answered the shepherd. I don't know who it is. While searching for one of my sheep in the forest, I came upon a grave covered with flowers. Above them all stood a reed. I cut the reed and made it this pipe of it. It plays itself, and as you heard what it says, the father of the little simpleton happened to be present. He took the pipe into his own hand and began to play. O oh, pipe, play, O oh, pipe, play. Comfort my poor father and mother. I was killed for the sake of my little silver plate and my little apple. The peasant asked the shepherd to take him to the place where he had cut the reed, and they all went into the forest and saw the grave and were astonished at the sight of the lovely flowers which grew there. They opened the grave and there discovered the body of a girl which the poor man recognized as that of his youngest daughter. There she lay, murdered, but by whom no one could tell. The people asked one another who it was that had killed the poor girl. Suddenly the pipe began to play. Oh, my fa oh my dearest father, my sisters brought me to this forest, and here they killed me for the sake of my little plate and my little apple. You will not bring me to life until you fetch some of the water from the Tsar's well. Then the wicked sisters confessed it all. They were seized and cast into a dark prison to await the pleasure of the Tsar. The peasant set out for the capital. As soon as he arrived at the city, he went to the place, saw the Tsar, and told his story, and begged permission to take some water from the well. The Tsar said, You may take some water of life from my well, and as soon as you have restored your daughter to life, bring her here with her little plate and silver apple. Bring your two other daughters also. The peasant bowed to the ground and returned home with a bottle full of water of life. He hastened to the grave in the forest, lifted up his body of his daughter, and as soon as he sprinkled it with water, the girl came to life again and threw herself into his arms. All who were present were moved to tears. Then the peasant started again for the capital, and arriving there went at once to the Tsar's palace. The Tsar came out and saw the peasant with three daughters who with them Arms bound, the third, as beautiful as the spring flower, stood near, the tears like diamonds falling down her cheek. The Tsar was very angry with the two wicked sisters. Then he asked the youngest for her little plate and apple. The girl took the box from her father's hand and said, Sir, what, do you, what would you like to see? Your towns or your enemies? The ships at sea or the beautiful stars in the sky? Then she made the little apple roll around the plate, and there appeared in it many towns, one after another, with bodies of soldiers near them, with their standard and standards and artillery. Then the soldiers made ready for the fight, and the officers stood in their places. The firing commenced, and the smoke rose, and all hid around from view. 
the little apple began to roll again on the plate, and there appeared the sea covered with ships, their flags steaming in the wind. The guns began to fire. The smoke arose, and again all disappeared from their sight. The apple again began to roll around the plate, and there appeared in it the beautiful sky with the suns and stars. The Tsar was astonished. The girl fell down on her knees before him and cried, Oh, sir, take my little plate and my little apple, and forgive my sisters. The Tsar was moved by her tears and entreaties and forgave the wicked sisters. The delighted girl sprang up and began to embrace and kiss them. The Tsar smiled, took her by the hand, and said, I honor the goodness of your heart and admire your beauty. Would you like to become my wife? Sire, answered the beautiful girl, I obey your royal command, but allow me first to ask my parents' permission. The delighted peasant at once gave his consent. They went and sent for the mother, and she too gladly bestowed her blessing. One, one favor more, said the beautiful girl to the Tsar, permit my parents and sisters to remain with me. On hearing this, the sisters fell down on their knees before her and cried, We are not worthy of so much favor. Dear sisters, said the beautiful girl, all is forgotten and forgiven. They who remember the past with malice deserve to lose their sight. She then tried to lift them up from the ground, but they, shedding bitter tears, would not rise. Then the Tsar, looking at them with a frown, bade them get up. He allowed them, however, to stay in the palace. A magnificent a magnificent entertainment then began. The palace was splendidly lightened up and looked like the sun among the clouds. The Tsar and the Tsarina rode out in an open chariot and showed themselves to the people who cried joyfully, Long live the Tsar and the Tsarina. May they shine upon us like the glorious sun for years and years to come. The Golden Fish by L. M. Gask Once upon, upon a certain island in the middle of the sea dwelt an old man and his wife. They were so poor they often went short of bread, for the fish he caught were only means of livelihood. One day when the man had been fishing for many hours without success, he hooked a small gold fish whose eyes were bright as diamonds. Let me go, kind man, said the little creature, cried, I should not make a mouthful either for yourself or your wife, and my own mates want for me down the river, down in the waters. The old man was so moved by his pleadings that he took him off the hook and threw him back into the sea before he swam off to rejoin his mate. The goldfish promised that in return for his kindness he would come to the fisherman's help if ever he wanted him. Laughing merrily at this, for he did not believe that a fish could help him except by providing him with food, the old man went home and told his wife. What, she cried, you actually let him go when you had caught him? It was just like your stupidity. We will not have a scrap of bread in the house, and now I suppose we must starve. Her reproach continued for a long time, though he scarcely believed what the fish had said. The poor old man thought that at least... It would do no harm to put him to the test. He therefore hastened back to the shore and stood at the very edge of the water. Golden fish, golden fish, he cried. Come to me, I pray, with your tail in the water and your head lifted up towards me. At the last word was, at the last word was uttered, the goldfish popped up its head. You see, I have kept my promise, he said. 
What can I do for you, my good friend? There is not a scrap of bread in the house, quavered the old man, and my wife is very angry with me for letting you go. Don't trouble about that, said the goldfish in an off-handed manner. You will find bread and to spare when you go home. And the old man hurried away to see if the little friend had spoken truly. Sure enough, he found that the pan was full of fine white loaves. I did not, I did not do so badly for you after all, good wife, he said, and they ate their supper. But his wife was anything but satisfied. The more she had, the more she wanted. She lay awake, planning on what they would demand from the goldfish next. Wake up, you lazy man, she cried, her husband, early next morning. Go down to the sea and tell your fish that I must have a new wash tub. The old man did as his wife bade him, and the moment he called, the goldfish reappeared. He seemed quite willing to grant the new request, and on the return home the old man found a beautiful new wash tub and the small yard at the back of the cabin. Why didn't you ask for a new cabin too? His wife said angrily. If you had a grain of sense, you would go. You would have done this without being told. Go back at once and say what we must have one. The old man was rather ashamed to trouble his friend again so soon, but the goldfish was obliging as ever. Very well, he said. A new cabin you shall have, and the old mart found one so pickled and pan that he hardly dare cross the floor for fear of soiling it. It would have pleased him greatly had his wife been contented, but she, good woman, did nothing but grumble still. Tell your fish, she said the next day, that I want to be a duchess, with many servants at my beck and call, and a splendid carriage to drive in. Once more her fish was granted, but now her husband's play was hard indeed. She would not let him share her palace, but ordered him off to the stables, where he was forced to keep comfortable with the go her grooms. In a few days, however, he grew reconciled to his lot, for here he could live in peace, while he learned that she was leading those around her in a terrible life. It was not long before she sent for him again. Summon the goldfish, she commanded heartily, and tell him I wish to be queen of the waters and to rule over all the fish. The poor man felt sorry for the fish if they had to be under his rule. For prosperity he had quite spoiled her. However, he dared not disobey, and once more summoned his powerful friend. Make your wife queen of the waters, exclaimed the fish. That is the last thing I should do. She is unfit to reign, for she cannot rule herself or her desires. I shall make her once more a poor old woman. Adieu. You will see me no more. The old man returned sorrowfully with this unpleasant message to find the palace transformed into a humble cabin and his wife in skirt and threadbare stuff in a place of the rich brocade which had which she had worn of late. She was sad and humble and much more easy to live with than she had ever been before. Her husband, therefore, had occasion many times to think gratefully of the goldfish and sometimes when drawing up his net, the glint of the sun upon the scales of which the captives would give him a moment's hopeful which, alas, was as often disappointment that once again he was to see his benefactor. The Wonderful Hare by W. S. Carson. 
There once lived a man who was very poor and who had many children, so many that he was unable to support them, as he could not endure the idea of perishing, their perishing of hunger, he was often tempted to destroy them. His wife alone prevented him. One night, as he lay asleep, there appeared to him a lovely child in a vision. The child said, O oh man, I see your soul is in danger, in the thought of killing your helpless children, but I know you are poor, and I am come here to help you. You will find under your pillow the morning a looking-glass, a red handkerchief, and an embroidered scarf. Take these three things, but show them to no one, and go to the forest. In that forest you will find a rivet. Walk by the side of the rivet until you come to its source. There you will see a girl, as bright as the sun, with long hair streaming down her shoulders. Take care that she does you no harm. Say not a word to her, for if you utter a single syllable, she will change you into a fish or some other creature and eat you. Should she ask you to comb her hair, obey her. As you comb it, you will find one hair as red as blood. Pull it out and run away with it. Be swift, for she will follow you. Then throw on the ground, then throw on the ground first the embroidered scarf, then the red handkerchief, and last of all the looking glass. They will delay her pursuit of you. Sell the hair to some rich man, but see that you do not allow yourself to be cheated, for it is of boundless worth. It produce, its produce will make you rich, and thus you will be able to feed your children. Next morning, when the poor man awoke, he found under his pillow exactly the things the child, things the child mad told him about in his dream. He went immediately into the forest, and when he had discovered the rivet, he walked to the side, walked by the side of it, on and on, until he reached its source. There he saw a girl sitting on the plank, threading a needle with rays of the sun. She was embroidering a net made of large hairs of heroes spread on a flame before her. She approached and bowed. He approached and bowed to her. The girl got up and demanded, Where did you come from, strange knight? The man remained silent. Again she asked him, Who are you and why do you come here? And many other questions, but he remained silent as a stone, indicating with his hands only that he was dumb and in need of help. She told him to sit at her feet, and when he gladly had done so, she inclined her head toward him that he might comb her hair. He began to arrange her hair as if to comb it, but as soon as he had found the red one, he separated it from the rest and plucked it out, leaped up, and ran from her with the utmost speed. The girl sprang after him and was soon at his heels, the man turning round as he ran, and seeing that his pursuer would soon overtake him, threw the embroidered scarf on the ground, and as he, been, as he had been told. When the girl saw it, she stopped and began to examine it, turning it over on both sides and admiring the embroidery. Meanwhile, the man gained a considerable distance in advance. The girl tied the scarf around her bosom and recommenced the pursuit. When the man saw that she was gaining about to overtake him, he threw down the red handkerchief, and at the sight of it, the girl again stopped, examined, and wondered at it. The present, in the meantime, was again able to increase the distance between them. When the girl perceived this, she became furious, and throwing away both scarf and handkerchief, began to run with increased speed after him. 
she was just upon the point of catching the poor peasant when he threw the looking-glass at her feet at the sight of the looking-glass the like of which she had never seen before the girl checked herself picked it up and looked in it seeing her own face she fancied there was another girl looking at her while she was thus occupied the man ran so far that she could not possibly overtake him when the girl saw the further pursuit was useless she turned back and the peasant joyful and unhurt reached his home within doors he showed the hare to his wife and children and told them all that had happened to him but his wife only laughed at the story the peasant however took no need of their ridicule but went to the neighboring town to sell the hare he was soon surrounded by a crowd of people and some merchants began to bid for his prize one merchant offered him one gold piece another two for the single hair and so on until a price rose to a hundred gold pieces meanwhile the king hearing of this wonderful red hair ordered the peasants to be called in and offered him a thousand gold pieces for it the man joyfully sold it for that sum what wonderful kind of hair was this after all the king split it carefully opened from end to end and in it found the story of the marvelous secret of nature and of things that had happened since the creation of the world thus the peasant became rich and henceforth lived happily with his wife and children the children had never the child he had seen in his dream was an angel sent down from heaven to succor him and to reveal to mankind the knowledge of many wonderful things which had hitherto remained unexplained the language of animals by w s Carish. a certain man had a shepherd who a certain man had a shepherd who had served him faithfully and honestly for many years one day the shepherd was tending his sheep and he heard the hissing noise in the forest and wondered what it could be he went therefore into the wood in the direction of the sound to learn what it was there he saw the dry grass and leaves cut, had caught fire and in the middle of the burning circle a snake was hissing the shepherd stopped to see what the snake would do for the fire was burning all around it and the flames approached it nearer and nearer every moment then the snake cried from amid the fire o shepherd for heaven's sake save me from this fire the shepherd stretched out his stretched out his crook over the flames to the snake the snake passed along it to his hand and from his hand it crawled to his neck where it twisted itself around when the shepherd perceived this he was greatly alarmed and said to the snake what have i done in an evil hour i have saved you or saved you to my own destruction the snake answered him fear not but carry me to my father's house my father is the king of the snakes the shepherd however began to beg the snake to excuse him saying that he could not leave the sheep but the snake answered him be not troubled about the sheep no harm shall come to them only go as fast as you can the shepherd then walked through the forest with the snake until he came to a gate which was entirely made of snakes knotted together there the snake on the shepherd's neck gave a whistle and all the snakes untwisted themselves then the snake said to the shepherd when we come to my father's palace he will give you whatever you ask for silver gold and precious stones do you however take nothing of these but beg to know the language of the brutes and other creatures he will refuse you 
for this for a long time, but at last he will grant you your request. Meanwhile they came to the palace, to the father who, shedding many tears, cried, For heaven's sake, my dearest daughter, where have you been? And she told him in due order how she had been surrounded by the forest fire and how the shepherd had rescued her. Then the king of the snakes turned to the shepherd and said to him, What would you what would you have me what would you have me give you for this deliverance of my daughter? The shepherd answered, Only let me under the strange language of animals. I want nothing else. The king said, This is not good for you, for if I were to bestow upon you the gift of the knowledge of the tongues of animals, and you were to tell anyone of it, you would instantly die. Ask therefore for something else. Whatever you desire to possess, I will give it to you. To which the shepherd replied, If you wish to give me anything else, then grant me the knowledge of the language of brute creatures. But if you do not care to give me that, farewell, and God protect you. I want nothing else. And the shepherd turned to leave the place. Then the king called him back, saying, Stay, come here to me. Since you will have it all at all hazards, open your mouth. The shepherd opened his mouth, and the king of the snakes breathed into it and said, Do you now breathe into my mouth? The shepherd breathed into his mouth, and the snake king breathed again into that shepherd. After they had breathed at each other three times into the other's mouth, the king said, Now you understand the language of animals and all creatures, all created things. Go in peace, and God be with you. But for the life of you, tell no one of this. If you do, you will die on an instant. The shepherd returned home through the forest. As he walked, he heard and understood all the birds said, and the grass and all the other things that are upon the earth. When he came to a sheep and found them all together quite safe, he laid himself down to rest. Scarcely had he lain down when there flew two ravens toward him, who took their perch upon the tree and began to talk together in their own language. What if that shepherd only knew that underneath the place where he that black sheep lies, there is a cellar full of silver and gold. When the shepherd heard this, he went to his master and told him of it. The master took a cart with him, and they dug down to the door leading to the cave and removed the treasure to his house. But the master was an honest man and gave all the treasure to the shepherd, saying, My son, all this treasure is yours, for heaven has given it to you. Buy yourself a house with it, marry and live happily with it. The shepherd took the treasure, built himself a house, and having married, lived lived a happy life. Soon he became known as the richest man, not only in his own village, but so rich that there was not an equal in the whole neighborhood. He had his own shepherd, cowkeeper, holster, and winerder, plenty of goods and chattel, and great riches. One day before Christmas, he said to his wife, Come, get some wine and some brandy, and all things necessary. Tomorrow we will go to the farmyard and take the good things to the shepherds that they may also enjoy themselves. The wife followed his direction and prepared all that he had told her. When they arrived the following day at the farmhouse, the master said to the shepherd in the evening, Come here, all of you. Eat, drink, and be merry. I will watch over the flock for you tonight. And he went in very deep and remained with the flock. About midnight the wolves began to howl, and the dogs to bark, and the wolves said in their language, 
may we come in and do what mischief we like, then you too shall have your share. And the dogs answered in their language, Come in and we will eat our fill with you. But among the dogs there was an old one who had but two teeth in his head and said to the wolves, That will not do. So long as I have my two teeth in my head, you shall do no harm to my master nor his. The master heard it all and understood what was said. On the following morning he ordered all the dogs killed, save the old one. The hind said, Heaven forbid, sir, that would be a great pity. But the master answered, Do what I have told you. Then he prepared to return home with his wife, and they both mounted their horses. And as they rode on, the husband got a little ahead, and while the wife fell behind, at last the husband's horses weighed and called to the mare, Come on, make haste. Why do you lag behind? The mare answered him, Ah, yes, it is all very easy for you. You have only one to carry. The master, while well, I have two to carry, the mistress and her baby. The husband turned around and laughed, and his wife, seeing this, urged the mare forward, overtook her husband, and asked him what he had been laughing at. Nothing, I do not know. Just something that came into my mind, answered the husband. But the wife was not satisfied with this answer, and she pressed him again and again to tell her why he had left. But he excused himself and said, Let me alone, wife. What is the matter with you? I do not know myself why I left. But the more he denied, the more she insisted upon his telling her what had been laughing at. And at last the husband said to her, Know then that if I tell you the reason, I shall instantly die. The woman, however, did not care for that, but urged him to tell her notwithstanding. Meanwhile they had reached home, and thus husband offered a coffin to be made immediately. And when it was ready, he had placed it before the house, and said to his wife, See now, I lay me down in this coffin, and tell you why I left, but as soon as I have told you, I shall die. The husband lay down in the coffin, and looked around him for the last time. There came the old dog from the farmyard, and sat down at his head and whined. The husband, seeing this, said to his wife, Bring a piece of bread and give it to this dog. The wife brought out a piece of bread and threw it down to the dog, but the dog would not even look at it. Then the house cock ran up and began to pick at the bread, and the dog said to it, You miserable greedy thing, you can eat and yet you see that the master is going to die. The cock answered the dog, And let him die, since he is such a fool. I have a hundred wives, and I call them all together whenever I find a grain of corn, and as soon as they have come round me, I swallow it for myself, and if any one of them got angry, I should be at her directly with my beak. The master has only one wife, and he cannot even manage her. When the husband heard this, he quickly sprang out of the coffin, took up a stick, and called his wife to the room. Come, wife, he said, I will tell you so much what to hear. Then he beat her with a stick and cried, This is it, my wife, this is it. In that way he quieted his wife and never asked him again what he had been laughing at. Well, that was a terrible story. I don't know what that one came out of. That's the last one. We will be uh, doing Halo next. I want to thank everyone for coming out. And I'll see everyone next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, 
you can visit flirtationsdonation.com where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.